Well, today we are continuing our series on Moses, and actually we're coming to the end of our series on Moses. And the passage we're going to look at today, uh, it's not just the end of our series, it's actually a passage that leads us to the end of kind of the finish line in Moses' ministry. Actually, I'm going to pause for a second, I can take this off now. That's probably better for everybody, especially me. So we're entering a passage where Moses is coming to the finish line of his ministry, and even to some extent, the finish line in his life. We've had an opportunity throughout this series to watch him run the race that God has set before him. And I hope that if you've been with us over the past eight weeks that we've been following the journey of Moses, you've learned about him, about his story, and perhaps even a little bit about God and, and, and our relationship to God as we've observed Moses and the children of Israel and how they related to God. And through all that, may, maybe there's an encouragement or maybe there's a challenge that you found on how we can run the race that God has set before us in our lives. Regardless of which lap of that race you may find yourself on, whether you are just starting your life with God and you're on that first lap or a little later on, or maybe even some of us who feel like we're on our last lap. Moses has run a good race. And he's remembered in the Bible as a great example of faith. In fact, in Deuteronomy 34, verse 10, it says, No prophet like Moses has ever risen up in Israel again. There's never been another prophet like Moses who knew the Lord face to face. He was an amazing example for us to follow for these past number of weeks. He set, in a lot of ways, a positive example for all followers of God on how they run the race of life and faith and relate to God. But as he now approaches the finish line, Moses stumbles and he falls. I got to say, this is one of the things that I love about the Bible, is that even some of its greatest characters, its greatest examples of faith that we find, the Bible shares with us their high points and their low points, their, their wins and their losses. It, it positions them as heroes, and it also shows us that, you know what, they, they got some warts and scars as well. I love that we get this full picture of understanding of these heroes of faith in the Bible. Because through it all, we can learn how to run and how to finish the race that we find ourselves in as well. If, for example, if you think back to the lessons that you've learned in life, there probably have been both of these. You've had positive examples and you've had negative examples, both of which are very formative and very much shaping for us. And I'd be willing to bet that the negative examples sometimes are the most powerful because they resonate with us in the deepest sense. So if you think back on that, you may have had good role models, good mentors who who showed you some behaviors, some attitudes, some perspectives that, that were positively reinforced by good outcomes, by stress-free relationships, by a lack of conflict and, and rewards such as this. You may also have some mentors and some people in your life where you observed negative outcomes, and it reinforces us to avoid certain behaviors. As I look back upon my time as a pastor, for example, the, about 16 years now that I've been a pastor, I can find many, many people who fall into these categories. I've been so blessed with wonderful mentors. I, I, I can think of a, a few of them. There's one, for example, who you walk into his office and he had this shelf full of these black, about, about a half inch thick uh, black spine books on his shelf. And there was probably 20 of them, just the exact same book. In a, in a row. And I asked him what they were, and he said, those are my prayer journals. He had been doing prayer journals longer than I've been alive. <laughs> and it was the same book and the same method, and he had this incredible history. 
And I don't know about you, but I, I'm not a journaler. Like the idea of, of stopping and, and writing down, it, it's just never resonated with me. But to see the faith in this man and the, and the prayer life in him, it inspired me to journal. And it's something that I've learned to use in my life. I had, I had a mentor who was an incredible, dynamic, expository preacher. And, and it just encouraged me to understand different ways to deliver God's word to people in, in different fashions and empower and staying true to the word of God. I had an incredible mentor who had this beautiful balance of strength, like resolve that was unshakable, but also incredible humility. And, and I've, very, very few people have I seen in this world this mix of strength and humility in the powerful leadership that he offered. These incredible positive mentors. I also had some negative ones. <laughs> I also had some, some pastors I served with who, who allow their spirits to run dry. And I saw how they lost their faith. I had some pastors that I served with who allowed pride to rise up in their lives. And it cost them their ministries. And it hurt many, many people around them. I, I, I even saw, unfortunately, some pastors who had some unchecked sin in their lives. And it cost them not just their ministries, but their families. Now, thankfully, I had the opportunity to learn through these by observing and not by stumbling myself in these negative ways. But in each of them, I learned something about how to run the race, how to run the race of life, how to run the race of faith in my life with God, and the path that he set before me. And so I just hope that I can be a positive example to those who I have the chance to mentor. And in particular, I've been trying really hard with the staff to be a positive mentor in dad jokes. And so well, you can ask them how that goes. But uh, I'm still getting a lot of groans. We'll see. We'll see. Once, once uh, Zach and Andrew start having children, they'll probably understand the dad joke a bit better. But anyways, there are positive and negative mentors that we have in our lives. We can learn from all of them. And so as we come to the end of Moses' journey, we see actually a little bit of positive, but we also see some negative things that we can learn. And so I want to invite with you to turn with me to Numbers chapter 20. If you have a, a pew Bible you want to use, it's found on page 123. Uh, notes will be in that pew portal if you want to use that as well. But we find this in Numbers chapter 20. And as you find that, let me give you a little bit of context and history of what's happening here. We are 39 years since, roughly 39 years, since the rebellion that took place at a place called Kadesh that we read about last week. If you're with us last week, we were in Numbers chapter 14, where the people had arrived at the edge of the promised land. And they sent spies in the promised land to explore, just to see how good is this land that God promised to us. And they came back and they said, it's true. This land is good. In fact, it is great. And even more than we ever expected, and, and that more was what shook them up a little bit, because they saw that there was more people and fortified cities and strong armies than they ever imagined, and it caused fear within them. And that fear grew within the community to the point where it stole their faith, and it stole their trust in God, and they wouldn't go in. And so God brings his judgment upon them. Now, in, in his judgment, he doesn't break his covenant with them, but he does discipline them. To the point where he says, none of you who are 20 years or older will enter into my promised land. And this is where that season, that famous season of Israelites wandering in the wilderness begins for a generation. And between Numbers 14 and Numbers 19 is basically the wandering of the wilderness for that generation. Where most of these rebels died. And then we get to Numbers 20, which we're going to look at today. And the next generation... It tells us in verse 1, the next generation now has arrived in the desert of Zin, and they camp at 
Kadesh. They've come full circle. They're back at Kadesh, a new generation. And I have to imagine this must have been an emotional time for the whole community. Have you ever grown up in a town that you leave and then you go back and visit again later in life? Or, or maybe there's a part within Edmonton, there's a house you used to live in, a community you used to live in, where you return to that elementary school or that first place you worked or that childhood home and you're just flooded with memories, good and bad, that took place there. Whenever Nadine and I go back to Prince George, we probably like a lot of people who go back to their hometown, they, they want to spend some time going to see the old sites. And so we'll stop by different houses and places and uh, drive by a house where I grew up. And uh, I'll always try, Nadine doesn't even know this, but I'll always try and drive by the place where Nadine lived when I met her and get a glimpse at the door that she walked out the first time I saw her. We'll, We'll go to the place where we raised our kids. So many good memories that took place. But there's also the negative. I'll also drive by a place where I had a serious car accident, and there's still thoughts and emotions associated with that. I'll still remember the place where I learned that a friend of mine had killed himself. There's all these memories associated with it. And I have to imagine that as Moses and these Israelites return to Kadesh, they're flooded with positive and negative emotions too, especially Moses. And he has been a shepherd of this wayward, stubborn flock for 40 years now. And it's been a hard 40 years. There have been some good times, but many, many more tough times as they wrestled with Moses, as they, as they wandered away from God, as he watched over the last 40 years, people that he knew and loved died through war or through age. And now they're back at Kadesh. They're back and they can reflect upon that journey. And I have to imagine that Moses hopes against hope that it will be different this time. But in the opening verse, in Numbers 20, verse 1, if that's any indication, hard times are going to continue. Because the first thing we're told is that Moses' older sister Miriam dies when they arrive at Kadesh. Which just makes it even more difficult. It's just this constant reminder of the passing of leadership, the passing of a generation. And Miriam had been there from the beginning. Miriam was the one who walked along the side of the river when Moses was in the basket floating down the Nile when the princess found him. Miriam was the one who walked and served and followed Moses these 40 years in the wilderness. And when they arrive at Kadesh again, she's the one who passes. It's this vivid reminder to all of us the cost of losing our faith and rebellion against God. But unfortunately, it's not enough to remind them to stay the path. Because old patterns begin to emerge again amongst the people. And we see that in verse 2. Where it says, now there was no water for them there at Kadesh. There was no water for the community. And the people gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron. And they quarreled with Moses and they said, Moses, if only we had died with our brothers who fell dead this past 40 years. If only we had died with them. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this wilderness? That we and our livestock should die here. Why did you bring us up out of Egypt into this, this terrible place? It has no grain, there's no figs, there's no grapevines, no pomegranates. And there's no water to drink, Moses. Why did you bring us here? Now, if you've been journeying these past eight weeks with us, you might be feeling just a, just a, a touch of the frustration that perhaps Moses was feeling at this point. And how would you react? 
Because I look back at this and thinking, really? We've just wandered for 40 years. We're back at Kadesh on the edge of the promised land. And this. If you're like me, my, my first thought is, I'm out. I'm not doing this again. We've done it once. I will not do it again. Perhaps some of you are a little more aggressive in your response. And you think, well, I would, I would retaliate. I can give it as good as I get it. And they're about to get it. Maybe some others, you are, are more of the style where you would just stand silently in shock and awe, but you would allow that anger to just start simmering and building inside as this takes place. We don't know exactly all that Moses felt, but I think we can understand confidently that he was disappointed. He was frustrated that some of the anger was starting to simmer inside of him. And here's the thing about this consistent life of faith, this race that we run, as I refer to it as. It is quite often won and lost in these types of moments. In the challenges, in the conflicts of life, is quite often where that race is won and lost. And as we walk through today, for the rest of the time that we have, Moses' response to this challenge, we're going to observe four principles that will not only help us run that race, but also help us to finish the race strong. Four principles, beginning with the first one, where Moses does not quit, Moses does not retaliate. What does he do? Well, the first thing that Moses and Aaron do in verse 6 is they seek God. They seek out God in their time of need. And we see this in verse 6, where it says, Moses and Aaron went went from the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting, and they fell face down, and the glory of God appeared to them. Perhaps you can relate to this situation like this, a moment of crisis where people are coming against you in full-out attack. And your natural tendency may be that defensive posture. It may be that counterattack strategy. It may be simply to stand and endure it on our own. And if you think of a time where maybe you've been in that situation where people have come against you and you've tried to stand on your own, quite often here's how it goes. We have a hard time standing on our own, and all of a sudden, victory seems elusive. And as victory feels like it is elusive, we begin to be defined by our opponents. And we get to be defined by defeated. And when we stand on our own, we stand in the presence of people, when these conflicts come against us, quite often it's a force that is too hard to stand on our own. And in those moments, victory becomes elusive. When we begin to think of defeat, we begin to be defined by defeat. Moses and Aaron go a different direction. They go towards the tent of meeting, and they fall on their faces before God, and they experience the glory of God. It's similar to what the psalmist says in Psalm 25, when he says, To you, O Lord, will I trust, will lift my soul. To you I will trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let me not be defined by defeat. Let me not be overwhelmed by my enemies. Let me not be put to shame, nor let my enemies exalt over me. Instead, let me experience the glory of God. What is that glory of God? It's it's a phrase you may have heard of, and the words might be familiar, but the concept is hard to define. Actually, theologians have a hard time fully defining this idea of the glory of God, but but in the simplest sense, here's what it is. Here's what they experienced when they sought God. It's the beauty of his presence is what the the glory of God is. We're not talking about a physical beauty here. We're, We're talking about the beauty of his character, being in the beauty of the presence of God's character where the opponents come against them and offer only hate and condemnation. But in the glory of God, they experience love, acceptance, 
and comfort for what troubles them. While their enemies are trying to define them by their wrongs, they experience the glory of God where they experience the grace of God. Forgiveness and correction. Where there are those who lie and twist their words, they experience the glory of God, which is light shining upon the hidden places and illuminating the falsehoods and bringing them into truth. Where their enemies and their, those who oppose them offer them the wrong path, the wrong way to define themselves, the glory of God directs their steps in what they should follow confidently going forward. You see, in times of trouble, step one is to seek the glory of God, to seek God into the glory of his presence. That's where we can experience things like love and grace and truth and guidance that we need. Now, we don't have a tent of meeting, per se, as they had. But what do we have? What do we have where we can experience the glory of God? First of all, we have the church where we can come together in a place such as this. And we can learn and we can worship and we can pray. But we also have the church in the sense of the people of God who are with us, where they can be conduits that, that encourage us and walk with us and support us in those difficult times. So we can experience the presence of God through the church and through the people of the church. We also have the ability to experience God through the word of God. As we open the Bible, which is God's revelation of himself, we can read and learn more about him and find steps to guide us along the path that we walk. We can pray as we've done a few times already this morning and enter into the royal courts of God where he welcomes us as sons and daughters, not as strangers and, and foreigners. And we can bring to God our concerns, our petitions, our praises, our challenges and seek his comfort and provision in those things. What Moses and Aaron had available to them was different than that, but the result is the same. Is that we're in these times of need and trouble, we can seek God in those times of need. And Moses and Aaron did that. They met with God, and God provided them with the guidance they needed. He provided them with a sense of assurance to direct how they could confidently move forward. And we see that in verse 7 and 8, where after they go to the tent of meeting and they, God's glory appears to them, God says to them, Take your staff, and you and your brother Aaron gather the assembly together and speak to the rock before their eyes, and it will pour out water. And you will bring water out of that rock to the community so that they, may, they and their livestock may drink. So God gives them directions. He gives them instructions on how to solve this problem that will lead to victory. But here's the thing about directions. Here's the thing about the information we receive. It's useless unless you follow it, which is principle number two. Obey God, even in the small things. Now, I have three children I've remodeled a few homes over the years of raising our children, and I've worked at a church for about 16 years, so I have built a lot of Ikea furniture in my time. Okay? All those things have to do with a lot of trips to Ikea. And if you've ever built Ikea furniture, you know that each box comes with a little drawings of instructions that you need to follow. But if you built enough of it, you know that they kind of have a standard manner on how Ikea furniture goes together. And so if you're an expert Ikea furniture builder like me, instructions are optional, right? Right, guys? I heard, I heard a lady say no. I didn't hear any guys say no. So I'm familiar with these instructions. I will, I will take a glance at them as a reminder of some of the key points. And then I'll start to build. 
and it'll, it'll be going pretty well. I'll have all the right pieces, and, and I'll have the right ideas, and I'll start to build, and I'll get halfway through, and, and all of a sudden, there's a piece that just won't quite go in, or, or I need to tighten a screw that I, I, I just can't reach. And then that inner guide tension kicks in, the one where you know you have to look at the instructions, but you don't want to admit it or let anybody else know that you have to look at the instructions. And so I don't often announce this to Nadine, but I will then open the instructions, and I'll have a look at them, and they end up giving me an idea of, of what I did wrong, and I'll look at it in fine detail, and I'll go, of course, the flour goes in the frugate, and then you can reach the bajorn. That's the order of these things. You see, what I was building without the instructions used the same pieces, and it looked similar, but the end result was by no means the same. And it was different in its strength and its ability to fulfill its purpose. Moses has been given these step-by-step directions. All he has to do is follow them. And in verse 9, he begins out so well following them. Step 1, God says, grab your staff. Got it. I've always got my staff with me. Step 2, bring Aaron with you. Aaron, let's go. We're heading out. Aaron comes along. Step 3, assemble the people in front of the rock. Hey, folks, come gather around the rock. There we are, got my staff, got my brother, we're all around the rock, following the instructions. So far, so good. But then Moses goes off course. And perhaps he's off course because he's influenced by the familiarity of the setting, because this is not the first time this has happened. There was another time, the same thing happened a generation earlier that we read about in Exodus 17, where the people at that time cried out for water against Moses. And the, and the Lord told Moses then in Exodus 17, verse 5 and 6, Moses, go out in front of the people with your staff, and I want you to strike the rock with your staff, and water will come pouring out. That's not what God said this time, is it? This time, in in Numbers 20, 40 years later, God says, I want you to take your staff, I want you to take your brother, I want you to gather people in front of the rock, but I want you to speak to the rock. I want you to speak to the rock this time. What did Moses do? Starting in verse 10. Moses said to the people assembled in front of him, Listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of this rock? Then Moses raised his arm, and he struck the rock twice with his staff, and water gushed out of it for the community, for their livestock and for them. Judging from the end result, mission accomplished. Water comes gushing out. The people in their livestock have things to drink. All is well. But not so fast. Because it's not quite that simple. You see, this is where Moses stumbles. This, This is the moment where Moses falls. Like an Olympic marathon runner who has run so well. Who has run at the lead of the race for so long. He gets to the final leg, and he trips, and he stumbles, and he falls. And all those years of training to win the gold are lost as he falls at the finish line. And we see this in verse 12, where God responds to what he did. And God says in verse 12, Moses, Because you did not trust in me enough to honor me as holy in the sight of the Israelites, you will not bring this community into the land I give them. 
Now, for many who read this story, you might feel like you're missing something. Because it feels like God is being way too harsh on Moses, Moses for what just took place. After so many years of faithful service, God has seemed to, seems to be making a mountain of a molehill here. Sure, he, he told Moses to, to speak to the rock, but instead, in Moses' frustration, he struck the rock. Is it really that big of a, de- big of a deal? It was fine the last time. The last time this setting happened, it was fine to strike the rock. Why, why not this time? Was it because Moses was angry? Some people suggest it was that he did this out of anger and frustration. That was the issue. I, I don't think that's the problem. Now, anger can be a problem, but given the situation, the 40 years of wandering in the desert and, and the death of his sister recently, we can kind of understand why he's on edge a little bit. We can understand. We could even argue, and some people would even argue, that there was a sense of righteous anger that took place here. What's going on? Why does God treat this misdemeanor like an indictable offense to the point where he is no longer allowed to bring the people into the promised land? Well, God told us in verse 12, as we consider God's response, we'll see two reasons why. And in that, we discover the third principle. The third principle is this, is that we need to trust God at all times. We need to trust God at all times. God clearly said in verse 12, Moses and Aaron... You did not trust me. You didn't trust me. Well, what were they trusting in then? They were trusting in the tools and the methods that had worked in the past. The tools and the methods that they had on hand. From Exodus chapter 3 at the burning bush, right up until this very moment, Moses has had that staff in his hand. That staff has been present at each plague at each miracle, at each step through that wilderness, he had the staff in his hand. And God had often given him instructions on the method on which to use that staff within the miracles. And over time, if you think about the nature of like our human nature, over time, it is easy to begin to believe that the power resides in the tool and in the method. And maybe we don't need God in the equation because I've got the tool and I've got the method. And this reveals one of the big issues that God was upset with, is that Moses had placed his trust in what he could control rather than in who was in control. Remember about 18 months ago, started COVID, and as things started to rapidly increase, how did people react? Well, one of the first things that happened, if you recall, we, we all stocked up on supplies. There is that race to corner the market on toilet paper, yeast, and flour. Some of you maybe have some of that stockpile still around. Well, last week in BC, as the floods started to cut off transportation routes, we saw it happen again. In 24 hours, Costco shelves were getting bare of the essentials again. Now, on one level, there's wisdom in this. Like, one of the ways that God provides for us is he gives us a brain. And when, when transportation routes are cut off, we know we need to stock up on some things. And so that's one of the ways that we find it's necessary to do this. But some people cross the line into hoarding. And when they start hoarding these things, quite often the motivation behind the hoarding is to have trust in things. If I just have enough toilet paper and spam, which tend to go together, I'll be okay. Right? If I have enough toilet paper and spam, I'll be okay. It's, it's just a method that many people will try as they seek to claim control over a situation. 
Moses is reminded of this the hard way. He's been given a tool in his staff and a method over the last 40 years, and he knows he needs to do his part. But ultimately, he cannot just trust in the tool and the method. He has to trust in who is behind the tool and the method, who is in control. Psalm 20, verse 7 says, Some of us trust in chariots, and others of us trust in horses. But we, the, the, the people of God, are to trust in the name of the Lord our God, the one who is ever present, the one who is ever true, ever faithful, ever trustworthy, the one who we can always depend upon in every situation. Whatever you might be facing right now today, in this particular moment, this particular season of the race that you're running right now, can I just ask you this question? Is there any way that you might be trying to control the situation through the method and the tools that you have in your hands? You know, sometimes I encounter people who are in a strained marriage, and the tools that they use are work and kids. And the method they apply with those is just, we'll just stay busy with the kids. We don't have to talk about those things. I'll just stay busy at work and I'll be able to make enough money that I can buy things. And those are the tools and methods to avoid the issue that exists within the relationship. There are people who have difficult situations that they face, difficult decisions they have to make. And they, and they fear the outcomes of one or the other. And sometimes there doesn't seem to be a good option. And so quite often there'll be, there'll be a decision to to align with one particular view for whichever reason, and then the tools become the gathering of information. If I can gather enough information to fill in the blanks and to support my position, then I'll have the tools that I need to deploy my method of going on the attack against others who see it differently. There are those who have lives full of past wounds, and the method is to numb the emotion, and the method is to numb the memories, and the tool ends up being substances and ways of escaping. So often people have this tendency to trust in the tools and the methods to deal with the situations in their lives. That's one option. The other options we've been talking about today so far is, number one, to seek God in the time of need. Number two, to obey him in the small things when he gives instruction. And number three, to trust him in all times. Because that lack of trust is not just the root of Moses' sin in this particular case. It also leads to another one. And it leads to principle number four which is to honor God in all things. You see, in verse 12, God starts by saying, Aaron and Moses, you did not trust me enough. But then he finishes the sentence by saying, you did not trust me enough to honor me as holy before the Israelites. And we see evidence of this in Moses' own words as he stands before the assembly around the rock. When it says in Numbers 20, verse 10 and 11, if you're looking back at that, Moses said to those who were assembled there, listen, you rebels, must we bring water from this rock for you? And so Moses raised his arm, and he struck the rock with his staff. See, at the heart of that question, he asked the Israelites, must we bring water from this rock? At the heart of that question is this idea that Moses and Aaron somehow had the ability within themselves to make this happen. Whether it be through the tools and the method that they had, which we've already seen, but I think it goes a step beyond that. It goes a step beyond it's not just trusting in tools and method, but trusting in himself. Now, all people have skills and abilities that we feel good about. And that's great. That's awesome to be able to deploy those and have success in life. But as, as one of the famous theologians, Alexander McLaren, said, he who claims power for himself denies it from God. 
He who claims power for himself denies it from God. How does that get applied to our lives? Well, as I was thinking about that this week, I was reminded of the wonderful testimony of, uh, of a former football player who many of you will know by the name Deion Sanders. If you used to watch football, you know, a couple decades ago, Deion Sanders was awesome. He was amazing. He was also flashy and arrogant and self-promoting, and it made for good TV. It made for great TV on the field, but in between plays or in between the quarters when they would, when they would interview people, it made for good interviews as well because he was flashy and brash. Then if you learn about Deion Sanders, you find out that he reached a point in his career where he wins the Super Bowl, he becomes the MVP, he gets the bonuses, he receives all the worldly benefits that go with those accolades, and he still finds himself empty inside. And he talks about how in the midst of that emptiness, when he should be at the highest of highs because of all that he had achieved, at the highest of highs, he's reminded of a Bible he was given by a friend a long time ago. And he opened the Bible and started reading about the love and the grace of Jesus Christ. And he gave his life to Christ. He then went on to play football. Still awesome. But when they would interview him, he would start by thanking God. And he wouldn't just, like some people, they'd say, thank God, and then go on and talk about themselves. He would thank God, and then he would go on to preach about God, which, which I think makes good TV. But networks stopped interviewing him because he wouldn't talk about himself. He would give all glory to God for all that he was accomplishing from that point going forward. So folks, when you go to work and you get a promotion or, or you get a bonus or an award, that's awesome. When, when as parents, we, we raise our kids and we, they do well and we feel like we, we parented well. When we serve in the church and we put in many hours for the care of others and, and we have a sense of, of purpose in that, that's great. Congratulations on the accolades at work and at home and in the church, but be careful. Be careful because success in life and family and church can lead us to suddenly start to say, I did that. My faith made that happen. That couldn't happen without me. You know, the Apostle Paul, more than anyone, had reason to have that type of confidence. The Apostle Paul could have bragged more than anyone, even more than Neon Dion could have in his career. Before Paul knew Christ, he was the top of his game. He was the highest of status, the highest of power. After Christ, still top of his game. He was essentially the first mega church multi-site pastor on existence. He had all the reasons to say, I did that. My faith made that happen. But what did he say? 1 Corinthians 15.10, he says this. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. I worked harder than others. I did my part, he says, yet not I, but the grace of God that was within me. See, we all have abilities, we all have opportunities, but quite often if we pause and reflect, they are God-given opportunities. They are God-given abilities, and we need to keep that partnership in mind, that our part is not insignificant. And so thank you for working hard. Thank you for serving diligently. Thank you for leading well. Thank you for raising your kids according to God's will in ways. You have our immense gratitude for all of that. But all glory belongs to God, who is behind all of that, whose grace is at work within us and is the source of all that.
So Moses was right to seek God in this time of need. But he failed to obey God, even in the small things. He failed to trust God at all times. And he also failed to honor God in all things. And that was his stumble and his fall at the finish line. So what about us? Where does that leave us for today? Well, I can tell you that how you finish the race will be dependent upon how you run the race. And first of all, you need to enter into the race. And you do that by putting your trust in Jesus Christ as your Lord and your Savior. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, Paul also writes this in reference to Israel who was wandering in the wilderness. He says, they, those Israelites in the wilderness, they drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that accompanied them. And that rock was Jesus Christ. That rock was Jesus Christ. Jesus, the one who was struck once by the staff as he hung upon a cross. The wooden staff that struck him one time as he went to the cross to pay the price for the sins that separate us from our relationship with God. To pay the price that we could not pay on our own. To go do what we could not so that we could have that relationship with God. And from him, who was struck by that staff once, springs of living water pour out. And Jesus said of himself that if you thirst and if you come drink of me, you will never thirst again. Because Jesus is the rock of our salvation that need not be struck a second time. Because he was struck the first time and the second time he only needs to be spoken to. As it says in Romans 10, 9, we may need only speak to him now because we can receive him, but we declare with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If that is a profession of faith that you need to make, you can make it today by coming to talk to somebody at the end of the service or online by chatting with somebody there. If you've made that profession of faith today or a day in the past, you have entered into the race. You now need to continue to run the race. Because Jesus says, all those who come unto me, I come to give them life in abundance. As the water gushed out of that rock, so too does new life gush out of the forgiveness that we receive from Christ. And how do we experience that as we run the race? We can do it through the positive and negative examples around us for sure. But most importantly, we need to meet with God daily. We can meet with him through reading our Bibles, through prayer. We've talked about these things today. Through, through serving those around us and through our fellow believers who are on a journey with us. Through these things and more, we can experience the glory of God. And we can do so by seeking him when you feel far from him. By obeying him when you feel like you are wayward from him. By trusting in him in all things. And by honoring him more than honoring ourselves. And if we can start the race and run the race, then we can finish the race. And when we finish the race that has been run well, we will hear the words one day, well done, good and faithful servant. I invite you to all stand and pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth and the relevance of your word today. God, I pray that in each of our lives as we consider what does it look like? What does it mean to seek you, to obey you? Lord, in what ways... Do we need to trust you more? And God, what would it look like for us to release honor from ourselves to you? Lord, I pray that you would guide each of us in that, that you would help each of us to guide one another as we would sharpen each other in our walk and encourage and support in these days ahead. Lord, for those who are struggling, hurting, or for those who might be in those strained relationships, those 
difficult decisions. Those choices that are being led by fear and a desire to control rather than trust. God, I pray that the spirit among us would just speak powerfully right now. Would bring that guidance that we need. And that we would be true to obey you, to trust you, and to honor you in the path that you guide us on. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.